welcome to this American Journal of Gastroenterology podcast. I'm Brian Lacey, Professor of Medicine at the Mayo Clinic Jacksonville and Co-Editor-in-Chief of the American Journal of Gastroenterology, along with Brennan Spiegel, my Co-Editor-in-Chief from Cedars-Sinai in Los Angeles. I'm delighted to be speaking today with Dr. Raymond Cross, Professor of Medicine and Director of the IBD Program in the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology at the University of Maryland School of Medicine. Today, we'll discuss his recent article, A Randomized Controlled Trial of Telemedicine for Patients with Inflammatory Bowel Disease, which was published online in the American Journal of Gastroenterology in January of 2019. Dr. Cross, welcome. Let's start with the big picture. Many of our listeners have heard the term telemedicine, but may not know the exact details. What exactly is telemedicine? Well, first, Brian, thanks for inviting me to participate. Uh, Simply stated, telemedicine is the exchange of medical information from one site to another electronically to to improve the health of an individual. And this can include telephone exchange, video conferencing, telehealth, remote monitoring, and so forth. So that's good to know because I think many people believe it's one technique, but clearly telemedicine is not just one technique and it comes in a number of different forms. And could you explain, uh, you know, some of the most common forms of telemedicine? Yeah, so there, as you said, there's several. Um, most commonly, I think people think of telehealth visits, which can occur from a provider's office, uh, ideally into the home of a patient. Uh, there's also another model where a distant provider is providing a service uh, to another site. This is typically in another office or in a hospital setting. Um, some examples of this can include tele-ICUs and so forth. Um, teleconsultation is also an example. So the Mayo Clinic, given all their networks of health systems that they have, they often participate with a expert provider at the Mayo Clinic with their other satellite locations. Teleconferencing has been used for decades for uh, cancer uh, work groups and so forth. And then our study really focused on remote monitoring, which is the collection of information from patients uh, through questioning and with the results being transmitted back to the Center for Interpretation. Ray, that's great. Thank you. So why the interest in telemedicine? We seem to be hearing more about this. Why is this important to gastroenterologists? Well, I think specifically in IBD and then other chronic illnesses, uh, despite more and more treatments being available, so there's still the outcomes in our patients are still not optimal. Um, so telemedicine can be a mechanism to improve these outcomes. And some of the reasons why it may be helpful, it may help us to detect relapses of disease earlier. Uh, it can be a mechanism to improve patient education, which is typically lacking in IBD. Um, it can be a way to implement care pathways to improve improve provider adherence. Um, it can also potentially improve patient adherence to uh, drug therapy. Um, it may be a way to get our patients engaged in self-management. And then by having the treating team and the patient on the same page, it can decrease discordance and potentially improve outcomes. As we become more and more specialized in GI, particularly within IBD, uh, it can also be a mechanism in areas where you do not have an IBD specialist to link patients in those areas to a specialist. And then I think, lastly, a lot of this is driven by patients. And I think patients are looking for more efficient mechanisms to receive their health care. Great explanation. I think I now understand it better, too. So, Ray, tell us a little bit about your study. Uh, What led to the study and what was the study design? 
So um, I have to admit, Brian, I'm not a telemedicine expert. I mean, if our com if our computer breaks down right now, I'm not going to be able to fix it for you. But what I can say is that taking care of patients with IBD, we wanted to see if we could improve outcomes, and we thought that telemedicine could be a mechanism for us to do that. And we and we conducted some preliminary studies, which showed that patients were very accepting of the technology. Um, using the technology was quite feasible, and we demonstrated in a small randomized controlled trial that we improve patient quality of life. Uh, one of the problems with our prior studies as well as those done outside of our centers has been a fairly high dropout rate over time in these studies. So we hypothesized that a new platform which used mobile phone technology would engage patients better and keep them in a trial longer. And so we developed a multi-center randomized controlled trial that included the University of Maryland, University of Pittsburgh, and Vanderbilt University. So this is good. Now we understand kind of the framework and how it's going to be done. Um, so what were the results? So some key take-home messages. So this was uh, the largest randomized controlled trial of telemedicine for IBD in North America and the second largest study overall. We were able to enroll 348 participants, which we were quite proud of. It also really uh, highlighted that if we can improve the delivery system, we can improve uh, patient engagement and adherence. And in fact, we had uh, just over 74% of our participants completed the final visit, and we only had 14% of our patients withdrawal during the course of the study, so that was quite exciting. We did see a decline in overall disease activity as measured by patient-reported outcomes as well as an increase in quality of life across all the groups. However, when we compared uh, change in disease activity and change in quality of life between groups, there was no difference between the standard care arm and the two telemedicine arms. We had a telemedicine arm that received testing every other week as well as a group that received testing weekly. We did see, however, that in the telemedicine groups, we saw a decline in hospitalizations, including IBD-related hospitalizations in the tele-IBD participants. This seemed to occur at the expense of more diagnostic tests, more electronic encounters, and more telephone calls, which would make sense given the enhanced monitoring that the tele-IBD group experienced. So, Ray, this is great. You're, you're, as you're just finishing there, you're mentioning decreased hospitalization in the tele-IBD participants. But then um, earlier on, just to clarify, you said that, unfortunately, the, the primary aims of the study, which were differences in disease activity and quality of life, weren't met, although you have a lot of neat information. So why do you think the primary endpoints uh, weren't met? So... The way we set the study up, Brian, is that we used remote monitoring as an add-on to their standard of care. So in other words, we didn't decrease in any way what the participants were getting as part of their routine clinical care. And all three sites are really experts in the care of patients with IBD. They have considerable resources available to them which are not available in the community. This can include excellent fellows that gather information so that the faculty can prevent more time educating and counseling counseling patients. They uh, deploy excellent nurse navigators, nurse coordinators to help between visits. Um, Vanderbilt and Pittsburgh have integrated psychiatry care into their clinic at this time, uh, utilize advanced
advanced practice providers, dietitians, and so forth. So these were really medical homes in the care of patients for IBD. So I think one of the theories is that in a setting like that where you have so many experts touching a patient, that adding remote monitoring may not be essential. So one of the questions is, would this be effective in a community setting where there are less resources? It's also possible that we, I mentioned we might have studied the wrong group, the wrong setting, but we theorize maybe that patients who have more active disease might do better with the intervention. Only about 40% of our patients had active disease at baseline. We did do some sub-analyses to see if that made a difference, and in, the, in, in cutting the data, it didn't seem to, but might we find a subgroup that would benefit? Um, I think really studying this as a partial replacement of care uh, could be could be where where the uh, where the money is, and you know you always have to make an assumption perhaps that the, the medicine telemedicine doesn't work, so it's just possible that it doesn't improve outcomes. I like the idea that these are amazing centers of excellence, and sometimes it's hard to raise that bar even higher, but those are all good thoughts. But I do want to cycle back to the fact that the study showed there were fewer hospitalizations in the telemedicine group than the standard care group, and that seems really important to me. Is that something you should pursue? Oh, I, absolutely. I think that um, I think that perhaps not for the entire population of patients at academic centers and centers of excellence, um, but I think looking at your high utilizing subgroup of patients to enhance their monitoring uh, with remote monitoring could be uh, very interesting. And this is similar to what uh, Larry Kaczynski's group did in Illinois Gastro with Project Sonar, where they put these enhancements in to monitor patients and it helped them to implement care pathways for the patients that were pinging, for lack of a better word, with symptoms. So I think this could be used in that high-risk group. And I also think that as IBD centers become busier and busier and access can become more of a problem, using this as a partial replacement of care so that you have access to see sick patients and new patients could be possible. And this is similar to what was done in Europe with the My IBD Coach technology, and it showed that you could use use this as a replacement for some standard care without any detriment in quality, but with, in fact, a decreased rate of hospitalization. Well, sounds like great ideas, and I see some studies in the future already. Um, cycling back a little bit to kind of outcomes and study design and thinking a little bit more globally, do you think that we've identified key and appropriate endpoints for telemedicine studies? Uh, should we be focusing on other things like global costs or patient satisfaction rather than disease activity? Yeah, I think that uh, I think in any study, patient-reported outcomes are, are important. I know we're moving towards you know, more objective endpoints, but I still thinking still think asking patients how they feel is still important and assessing quality of life. And always, when you're studying new technology, patient acceptance and satisfaction is going to be important. And I think as you know, medical costs are, are really skyrocketing with IBD. For example, in our study, 60% of patients at baseline were using a biologic, and by the end of the study, it was 61%. So the cost associated with that can be staggering. So I think any technology that we can investigate that has the potential to decrease costs through either decreasing office visits, hospitalizations, ER visit can be critically important. So, Ray, many people, uh, many of our listeners will read this article and think about it and may get excited about research, and they may want to introduce telemedicine into their clinic. What advice do you have for those people just starting a research study and thinking about telemedicine? 
Well, I'm, I'm obviously a big, big proponent, and whether it's for research or whether it's for clinical care of your patients, I think it can definitely have a role. I think before you embark on this, you really have to ask why, who, and what. Um, for the why, what are your goals? Are you trying to improve patient satisfaction? Are you, do you want to extend the reach of your practice? Do you live in a, a rural area where you really need to go further to reach your patients? Um, if you are within a hospital-wide system where you have a lot of sister hospitals and practices, do you want to use this so you can have a central hub for an expert that can reach out to those centers? Or do you just simply want to find ways to improve access? So I think those are the whys. The who is, you know, what patients are you looking at? Uh, are you looking at specific subtypes of patients? Are you trying to use this for people that are initiating new drug therapy or that are high risk for excess healthcare utilization? If you're using this as a teleconsultation, are you trying to support the primary care community or are you trying to support your local gastroenterologist? And particularly if you're thinking about remote monitoring, you have to really think about, okay, I can get this information, but who's going to monitor this and how am I going to pay for them? So um, if you're getting much, much more information back than you're used to getting, someone has to sit down and have the time to process all that and to process it on a, in a timely and efficient manner. And then the what? And, you know, what model are you using? Are we talking remote monitoring, telehealth, teleconferencing, and then what local regulations are present? So this can involve things like licensing, informed consent, and credentialing. So really, you have to go to your local legal and compliance team to figure that out. And then we can't, I hate to talk about RVUs, but RVUs are just the way of life that we have right now. And so you have to think about what impact positive or negative it can have on your RVUs. I think that most of our listeners don't like to talk about RVUs, <laughs> so that won't be surprising. So these are great tips for somebody thinking about potential research studies. And really, this has just been a wonderful conversation. I know that all of our listeners have learned an awful lot about telemedicine. Any last thoughts for our listeners? Well, first, I'd like to thank the American Journal of Gastro for inviting me to participate. It's been a lot of fun. Um, I also want to thank my collaborators at Pittsburgh and Vanderbilt, as well as my, as well as my collaborators here at Maryland, uh, for their involvement. It takes really takes a village to pull off a trial of this of this magnitude, and I was really fortunate to have wonderful colleagues to make this happen. And of course, I should thank the funding agencies for this: the AHRQ and the General Clinical Research Center here at the University of Maryland. Okay, once again, Dr. Cross, thank you so much for your time and valuable insight. We really appreciate it. Great. Thanks, Brian.